I called my mom and I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to learn all this stuff. I'm trying to meet legislators and I'm, I'm trying to do all these things and tell people what it means to be a farmer and to love the land and to be invested in food and to care about people. And I just had somebody yell at me after what feels like the longest day of my life. <laughs> and she was, she was like, I think that you are right where you're supposed to be. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. This week's guest was raised in farming, then trained and worked professionally as a journalist, and now brings those two worlds together. I want you to meet Pam Lewison, who's a farmer with her husband and her parents in the Moses Lake area. She'll share about all kinds of stuff that they do on the farm, how it works, and some personal stories about how hard it can be. Now she's also a policy analyst and writer following what happens in Olympia, and she has some troubling insights into the disconnect and how it's affecting the future of our food system here in Washington and the failures oftentimes of our state's leaders to protect the future of family farms and local food. Meet Pam Lewison here on the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop covering all these kinds of issues all over Washington state, getting to know the real people behind our food. Okay, so you're like a policy analyst. Yes. But also a farmer. Yes, I am also a farmer. And I think a lot of people oftentimes forget that you are a farmer, not just like, you know, have a big garden farmer. Like you have a legit farm here. I have like a real farm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, um, I actually am a terrible gardener. Really? Yeah, like I'm not good at it at all. So how can you be a good farmer if you're not a good gardener? What's the difference? Because farming's not the same. In fact, I wrote an entire blog about farming and gardening are not the same. Yeah. Uh, Because for me anyway, gardening is really time consuming and it's very attentive to plants in a different way. And uh, my husband and I are very attentive to our farm plants, but um, on a commercial scale. When you have millions of plants, like corn in the distance, you know, you probably have what, 30,000 of them per acre or something like that. Uh, We do. That's about, that's actually about right. Yeah. Um, Well, I used to plant corn, so I know about seed counts. Yeah. So we have, um, and we have about a third of the farm is planted in corn. And so um, it's, it's different because it's, it's more about um, making them productive on a scale that's, yeah. You can't, you can't tend to each corn plant when you have millions of them. No, and I and I wouldn't want to. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. I mean, we most of the most of the farm that we actually farm is real irrigated, so you are actually to a certain extent tending it by hand because we yep. go out twice a day on twelve hour sets and move the water by hand. And I have my a favorite shovel that's just mine. I think we had a text. Yes. Conversation, conversation about this because yeah. my dad has, I think it's basically the same shovel and he's very protective of it. Probably. It's a double out spade minus. It was tempered in Ireland. It's po- a potato okay. digger shovel. In fact, yours is probably even fancier than, um, fancier than his. His is just like an old school, true temper. They had a different shape to them. Yes. It's very old. Mine is. Um, this I, is farmer talk. I mean, farmers geek out about <laughs> yeah. things like shovels. I know. I won't let anybody else use it. It's had like two different handles. Um, it's so it's a big deal. Like, do you sharpen it? Yes, but not too much because then you'll no, like, slowly lose the shovel. Like, like my dad year. lost his. Yeah. 
<laughs> my actually my mom's was that way. Like it started out as this beautiful spade that was really old, and it's like this big now. It's it's it's, it's like it's like four inches big and it's flat. So um, what do you do? You go out and actually dig little trenches for the water to get out to the plants. Kind so of thing? you have to extend the ditch a little bit mm-hmm. for real irrigation. So f- for for your listeners at home, yeah, a brief discussion about real irrigation. <laughs> uh, so we have part of the farm uh, in hoses and part of it in siphon tubes. You please PSA: do not suck on a siphon tube. It's just don't. <laughs> Uh, use your hands. You gotta um, kind of shake it in the water a certain way to get it to siphon, right? Yes, and if you're um, if you're an old initiate of siphon tubes, you do it with one hand. Uh, that's that's the how old we do school, it. the good guys. Well, you're just in way. the habit, and it's faster, and yeah. it's just it's just better. Uh, but there's ditches only go up as far as your tractor will allow. Effectively, every six or eight rows, depending on what you're planting, and then uh, you have a headlander which is basically an auger that will extend that ditch and, and cover the gap where the tractor was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still a little kind of mole-filled <laughs> bit that you have to go through and dig out. So um, the first watering with real irrigation is not great because every every ditch basically has to be hand-dug out mm. because you're either digging out the last of the headland or fixing the tractor turnaround or there's something else that needs to be done a ton Uh, of physical labor literally digging ditches yes and again for for people who don't don't, haven't seen this before there are ditches or canals Mm -hmm. that's where the water is from this whole irrigation project that this whole area is fed by Mm -hmm. and then these tubes basically allow the water to siphon out of the ditch and into the field through these smaller ditches that you're talking about the rills the rills and then, that take it to the plants and depending on what crop we're talking about those rills are every 18 inches or so it's approximately every step you are moving water or, or like probably what a field quarter mile for 25 acres or so uh, so there's you're getting your steps in yeah no kidding <laughs> people say farmers aren't fit <laughs> um so i mean that's that's one part of it, and, and on this farm this year we have, um, so we've got the field corn, and then we also are growing black beans this year. Mm. We haven't grown beans in a few years, um, but it is part of our normal rotation uh, because they bring in a lot of nutrients back into the soil that wouldn't typically be there. So They're, they're nitrogen fixing like a yes. legume, right? Yes, and so they're a great replenisher of things. And then um, next to us, off on this side over here, uh, we have our alfalfa, which is um, sort of my husband's bag. He loves it. Um, it's it's his baby. He's out here looking at it, testing it, checking it all Waiting the time. for it to be perfect, to, to cut and to rake yes. and to bale, or maybe you don't rake it at all. How do you do it? We do rake, um, and we have to cure it for quite a while. Um, I don't know how long you all cure things in Western Washington, but we have to cure for a while. Well, we don't really put up alfalfa hay in that's any true. quantity. Yes, there. that's probably because we could never get it dry. It's just not <laughs> as dry there as yeah. here. Yeah, that is that's true. People put it up as silage back by us yeah. a little bit. I feel like here silage is not really a thing. I mean, it is, but it's mostly corn silage, not haylage. Yep. Uh, I think because it just feels like a waste um, because. You're able to get, you know, four, sometimes five cuttings in an average year. And if you can do that and time it just right, 
you always have really good nutrition in dry hay. And when I say time it just right, uh, our, we usually cut when hay is about waist high, but before it blooms. Hmm. Um, it's always our goal is to get it before it blooms. Because the quality goes down at that point. Yeah, as soon as hay pushes a bloom, it loses most of its nutrition um, because it's wasted all of its nutritional value to get the bloom out. Right. Just like, just like most other plants, you know. Yeah. Like in a garden, when you are growing pumpkins or something like that, you try to cut them back so they don't waste everything growing those big vines. Right. Um, so it's similar with hay. You're trying to limit the bloom to make sure that all that nutrition stays in there for the animals. So how can you tell? I mean, hay blooms, but it's not like it has, it's not like it's a field full of flowers. It actually kind of is. It's, yeah. It sort of gets kind of a purple hue. Um, and that's when you know you've left it too long because it's, um, you can just see the bloom. And if you're out here looking, uh, with any regularity, you'll see it start to come on. So the edges of the field will get bloom first, uh, because they get stressed a little bit more because they have Mm -hmm. a little less water. Yep. And then once you, once you see that, that's your telltale sign that it's time to get your swather out and get out there and get a cut. Um, and then we'll lay it down, let it rest for a few days, dry out, flip it over with the rake, and then uh, wait a couple more days and go through and bale it. And we usually do a half and half. So we'll do half big bales, uh, three by fours. Three feet by four feet. Yeah. Like these ones by us here. Are these, these are four yeah. by four? No, no, these are all three by fours. Three by four. And they're about, yeah. they're about 1,300 pounds a piece. A lot of hay. It is a lot of hay. That's a lot of cow food. Yeah, we have we have a couple steers in the pens down by the house, and they'll they'll munch on a single big bale for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a nice easy feed. <laughs> so that's amazing. You know, a couple of steers eat that much poundage mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. Yeah, fifteen hundred pounds. Yep, two weeks, uh, basically free choice feed for those cattle, and and it's gone. There's there's stems left. Um, and then we also do small bales too. So um, we try and we try to make them a manageable weight, no more than a hundred pounds. But um, it all depends on what the the hay looks like and how well it will bale. Two stringers or three stringers. Two stringers. Nice. Two stringers. So like the quintessential hay bale, as people recognize. Yes, sort of that, that you can lift by hand. Yes, that you can lift by hand and and feed to your horse or you know whatever right. small livestock you might have. Even though I'm assuming you guys have the equipment, so you don't have to buck the bales by hand. I, you know, we do and we don't. So a hay grapple will only get you so far. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we tend to do with... I thought I saw one up on the stack yeah, over there. we got one right over there. Yeah. Uh, so what we'll do with the grapple is um, get them sort of semi-organized, uh, use the grapple to help us with that, and then do a little bit of hand stacking as well. So it's it's still labor-intensive. Uh, yep. My husband, sort of like favorite trembles, my husband has a favorite pair of hay hooks yep. uh, that have, they actually have leather coverings so he doesn't um, get quite so tore up mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. uh, hay bucking. Um, Do they have blades on the back to, I guess they aren't for feeding, so. No, they don't. That um, uh, caused about a, that big of a cut in my grandpa's arm I when I was it. a kid, yeah. I remember. He missed and hit his arm oh. with the blade on the back of the hay hook. And I actually don't use hay hooks because um, <laughs> because they're too long and my arms are too short, I guess. <laughs> and so I just can't leverage the yeah. bales right with hooks. Yeah. Um, 
So I get yelled at all the time because I, <laughs> I grab them by the strings, uh, which you're not supposed to do if you're good at it. Yeah. So, um, and then we this year we tried something different. We have TEF, uh, which I joke is sort of like keto for horses because mm. it's um, high protein and low carb. And it's great for performance animals. So we're giving it a whirl. So that's see. a kind of grass? It is. It's it's similar to Timothy or orchard grass, mm-hmm. but the nutrition content's a little bit different. So we'll see what happens. It's it's a first try. Yeah. Yeah. Probably every time you do something like that, there's all different little details of, oh, it takes a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that. There's a learning curve, but it's been really interesting to see it grow in somewhere that we didn't think that it would. To to be honest, we have some salt intrusion because of the um, the federal irrigation project brings a lot of salt into the fields closest mm. to the canal, and so we tried it because we had heard that it was a little bit sort of more drought and salt tolerant. Um, drought tolerant, yes, salt tolerant, not so much. Mm. Um, but where we got it to take, it turned into this really beautiful field. Mm. Um, and we've got it cut and baled, and um, we're having to get it picked up fairly quickly because it's already starting to grow back mm, wow. um, at a really quick rate without any additional water. Mm. Um, so on that level, it's really yeah. nice to yeah. see. Um, so we'll see what kind of return we get on our investment there. And yeah. it may be something that we offer in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So you grow teff mm-hmm. and grass hay. Well, alfalfa. Alfalfa hay only. You don't do other kinds of grasses or timothy or anything. Mm-mm. And you have corn. Mm-hmm. What else do you grow? And the black beans black this beans, year. Right. Yeah. And then, and I don't know if we'll keep doing the beans or not. They, they sort of conflict timing-wise with first cutting. So you have to decide kind of what your priorities are because... Um, we're also a small operation. It's it's basically my husband and I and my parents who um, are sort of easing into the thought of retirement uh, yep. as much as farmers can. <laughs> right. Um, and so you have, you know, a limited amount of time mm-hmm. in a day to get all the things done that need to be done. And if my husband's cutting hay and I'm doing policy work, then it's a matter of how else are we going to have time to get beans in the ground on time? Yeah. Um, and our, uh, bean, <laughs> our bean crop consultant will say, figure it out, be out there in the middle of the night, um, <laughs> if that's what you have to do. Uh, I, At some point, there's a, like, you know, we got to keep our sanity well, threshold, I, I would imagine. I think a sanity threshold, but also we do try to make time for family, and yep. um, we're a home-cooked meals household, and... If I'm on the road a lot with um, off-farm work, it makes it really challenging to figure out how to juggle everything. So we figure it out. But you guys have hundreds of acres that you're farming with just a few people. Yes. And and you for a lot of people, if they heard the size of your farm, they would think, that's huge. But here, in the context of this community, this region, you're one of the smallest farms. Yes. So... We are. We are quite small comparatively. So um, we're not quite 400 acres on our farm, which makes us among the smallest probably as a business operation. Um, And when you look at our size uh, relative to the people who effectively work here full time, which is my husband, right? 
um, that's a lot of work for one person yeah. to juggle as a full-time job. But it's still incredible that one person plus your help when you have time and probably your dad mm-hmm. helps mm-hmm. for for the three of you basically yep. to farm that many acres. I mean, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you would need dozens of people yes, to farm I- that much land. Absolutely. And we do, we do lease out part of it. So, uh, you know, we're not farming all of that acreage. Right, right. We lease out, uh, anything that's under a circle, we actually lease out to other people because it's effectively passive income for us. One of those like irrigation, the <laughs> yes, uh, center think, pivot irrigation. Yes. Other people call them pivots. I call them circles. Um, cause they are, um, uh, I can call them whatever circle. because I come from Western Washington where we have almost none of them. Um, and so the with the exception of the one that's next to us here with our hay, that's the only circle that we actually actively farm. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else that's under sort of center pivot irrigation uh, is farmed by someone else, at least for the time being. And so um, I think that actually makes it in some ways more impressive because... Those are effectively automated systems. You go it's out. It's a you, lot easier to keep water on your right. You turn plants. the water on, and it does all the work for itself. And you can run them from your phone now and see uh, how much mm-hmm. water you've put on, how much time, and start and stop it from a distance. Yep. And yeah. Um, so we are running all real irrigated um, with basically one person full time, and then uh, my dad and and I chipping in as well. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that, like I was saying a minute ago, 50, 100 years ago, you couldn't have done that with the technology and the equipment at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, so on one hand, you think about, well, mechanization being a, a bad thing for farming, but it allows you guys to grow a lot of food with just a few people and still be like a mom and pop size farm. Mm-hmm. And I think hands that, on, you know, rather than a huge crew. I don't think that mechanization is inherently a bad thing. I think, and I think actually for us, what we do well is marry old and new. So we use GPS. Um, it's a relatively new addition to the farm uh, because my dad is a firm believer that he can draw a straight line and he doesn't need GPS. Um, so we've kind of worn him down on this whole notion of GPS over the last couple of years. But GPS allows you to do some things like be more efficient, be faster, um, save fuel and seed and fertilizer and all those other things. Because it minimizes the overlap if you aren't 100% sure where you're at with the tractor. You may cheat it over six inches. Well, six inches over how many acres? Is a lot. Adds up to extra fuel, fertilizer, seed, all of it. And so um, we do that. But it's coupled with not having a lot of debt. So we own most of our equipment outright, um, which means that it's not particularly new. Mm-hmm. Um, but in keeping some of that older equipment and keeping our debt load low, um, it harkens a little bit back to sort of an older idea about how you run your farm, which yeah. is um, that you, if you keep those things in good working order and well-repaired and maintained – um, you can weather those sort of peaks and valleys that farming has inherently um, no. because there are certainly good years and bad years. And it's a lot easier to to survive those mm-hmm. if you're not getting to December and saying, okay, now I have to write a huge check for 
all of my equipment, you know, payments or rentals or whatever the case may be. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored by Mana Insurance Group for one, and a big thank you to them for supporting the podcast, uh, as well as helping people make a plan to protect their financial future. And that's what it's about is having a plan ahead of time, having the things in place, because oftentimes once something goes wrong, it, it's too late. That's their focus. Their focus is on helping you have a plan that's reasonable, affordable, but also protects your family's financial future. Manainsurancegroup.com. Check them out. Also, the Dairy Farmers of Washington at wadairy.org. That's their website. And they are all about the nutritious and sustainable dairy products produced here in Washington State. We talk with dairy farmers here on the podcast often, and they share many more stories as well as nutritional information, sustainability information, lots of stuff at wadairy.org. That's what the Dairy Farmers of Washington are all about. So go check them out. Um, they've got all kinds of resources if you want to find out more about milk and dairy products and how they're produced here in Washington State. Now we go back to Moses Lake, where we chat more with Pam Lewison, uh, who's a farmer and a policy analyst. So farming is just part of your life, as we've been saying, and you've been, you know, I introduced you as a policy analyst and you've, you know, referred to that briefly, but mm -hmm. talk about that part of your life. Like what... <sighs> That, that's your day job, technically, yes. right? Yeah, so being a policy analyst is my day job. is something that I sort of came by by accident. It wasn't, mm. um, wasn't a plan. Um, I was a journalist for almost 10 years, mm. uh, right out of undergrad. Um, so I went to WSU and got a degree in creative writing. <clears throat> I have an emphasis in poetry, actually. So. Nice. Uh, if you do you any, still write poetry? I do, actually, in my leisure time. <laughs> we need to get a farmer poetry thing going. We'll get, like, Ron Tebow, and sure. we'll get you going. We'll get get some farmer poets going. I, I'll tell you, Ron's is probably better than mine. Um, <laughs> he's, he's pretty uh, don't guy. Don't ever sell yourself short. Um, so I, I, I have an emphasis in poetry and creative writing. Um, but to my surprise, at 22 years old, um, nobody wanted to hire me to write poetry. Uh, <laughs> So I, I got a job in a newsroom because yep. I could write and um, I learned quickly and I could write on deadline very fast and with some accuracy. Um, and I spent a long time in journalism and realized that I wanted to have um, a life like a normal person uh, because I didn't get to work until like noon, but I didn't leave work until like midnight. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it not really conducive to like have a family or yeah really it's one thing if you do that for like a harvest season because that's when you're working at the plant or something but when you do that year round it's it's tricky been there <laughs> yeah so i mean and and your story is similar to mine in that way where you come from a farming background you want to be a communicator so you get into it professionally because i did the news thing for like over a decade too same thing yeah so um I was in the latter stages of journalism and I kept thinking to myself, it's funny how similar journalism is to farming in that mm. they're very insular communities yep. within larger communities. Yep. Uh, and people don't know what journalists do on a regular basis. Not really. Yeah. And people don't know what farmers do really. And that's actually how I got into graduate school at mm. Texas A&M. Mm. Um, I wrote my... Uh, application essay about wanting to bridge the gap between 
consumers and producers and wanting to help explain what it is that happens on a farm to consumers in a way that they could understand. Right. And so um, my husband and I were dating at the time and I said, so I kind of sort of got into graduate school and he was like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Where? And yeah, he was like, so he, you know, he was like, he was thinking like Oregon State or something, or maybe U of I. And I said, so it's in Texas. And uh, he was like, that's okay. That's far. And I said, so I'm going to go and uh, we'll just figure it out. And he said, sure. And in a testament to what a keeper my husband is, he did tough it out um, for a year and a half while I was on campus at Texas A&M. Uh, and we got married shortly after I came back. But uh, then I sort of stumbled around a little bit because I was like, okay, in Texas, being an Aggie means that you can work pretty much anywhere. In Texas. In Texas. Being an Aggie in Washington, people are like, okay. neat. Yeah. That's great. They don't you. care. Yeah, they're like, uh, cool, so you paid out-of-state tuition for graduate school. Good job. Um, so, I, so I hunted around a little bit for work. I landed at uh, the East Columbia Basin Irrigation District. Mm. I learned a lot about how the federal irrigation project works, which is fine because I'm kind of a history nerd. Also, I did a history day project in sixth grade about the Columbia Basin Project, funnily enough. Um, my parents probably still have the scale model in their basement. Um, it was fully functional. It had, like, water recycling stuff. And wow. talked about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a super nerd. Um, and then after a little while, I was kind of like, you know, this isn't really what I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the Washington Cattlemen's Association uh, was kind enough to hire me to run their communications. So mm-hmm. I did that for almost a year. And then um, a friend of mine at Cattlemen's sent me the job description for Washington Policy Center's Ag Initiative. And she said, you know, I think that, I think this is the job for you. Mm. I think that you should apply for this job. And I was like, I don't know anything about public policy. (laughs) Why would I do that? And she said, I just, you should just try. Just humor me and apply for the job. Um, And then... Three interviews later, uh, they hired me, um, which felt very surreal for yeah. me, to be honest, because I was sort of like, are you sure? Like, I I just want to be clear that we're not, this isn't some sort of punked episode that I don't know about. <laughs> I um, know that feeling, yeah. And um, so I started, <laughs> my first day of work was um, the first day of the legislative session Oof. Um, the session that um, Rebecca Saldana introduced uh, her ag slavery legislation. Okay, explain what that was just real so, quick. So the ag slavery legislation um, implied that all farmers were slave owners um, and that they were abusing their workers on farm um, and that it was incumbent upon them to report, self-report all incidences of um, slavery on their farms um, to to the powers that be. <laughs> and, Mind-boggling. Right. I mean, so beyond illegal, and there, yeah, there's so many reasons. And offensive. Yes. Because it's not true. 
Yes. I remember when this happened and, and it was like, how is this helping the conversation right. at all? I, and I, for me, I was sort of, you know, I'm sort of drinking from the fire hose because it was yeah. the, there was that piece of legislation and then also a piece of legislation um, to to um, increase the fee rate for H-2A. And it basically all happened at the same time. For the guest worker program. For the guest worker program. The, the fee that the farmers pay right. to participate in the program. But on a state-only level. So um, right now it costs approximately $1,500 per employee to apply for an H-2A worker. And this idea was to float an additional state-only fee on top of that fee, even though our state agencies already receive federal money to process H-2A applications. I had forgotten about that. And so I was frantically um, learning about this sort of federal quasi-state program, guest worker program, and trying to figure out how to answer this ag slavery question. And I had been at work for like three days. Yeah, fire hose. <laughs> yeah, like for real fire hose. And um, I I was like, I don't know if I have the bandwidth for all of this. Like it's mm-hmm. so much. And, and I'm, you know, doing that and we still have a farm to run. And I've got two kids and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to juggle all this stuff. And I, I think we were about halfway through the legislative session and um, Washington Policy Center research staff at that time were all doing visits to Olympia. And I met 17 legislators in a day and I was exhausted. I mean, by the end of it, I was just like, I can't, I'm, this is, I'm just, this isn't for me. Yeah. I just cannot do this. Yeah. And, um, I remember I was talking to my mom. I was sitting in a rental car. It's raining in Olympia. I'm just like, of course it's raining in Olympia. That's what it does here. And I was was so tired. The last legislator I met yelled at me and basically told me to get out of his office. And and I was like. Why? uh, Not not to get into all the. We had sort of a difference of opinion about some things. And, and I sort of said, you know, I really did just come here to introduce myself and offer to be, um, you know, a helper in the right. event that you need some help with something. Yeah. Um, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully our people making these kinds of decisions in Olympia want the right information to base their decisions on. Right. And I, hopefully. And I said, you know, I really just, you know, I appreciate your time today, but I think I'm just going to go. And uh, his response was, yeah, that would be best. And I said, wow. So that kind of stuff goes on, huh? Yeah. And I said. Just somebody who's wanting to to share information. Yeah. And may have a different perspective. Yeah. So I picked up my bag and and I headed out. And Mm. um, I I called my mom and I was like, I don't don't know if I'm cut out for this. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to learn all this stuff. I'm trying to meet legislators. I'm, I'm trying to do all these things and tell people what it means to be a farmer and to love the land and to be invested in food and to care about people. And I just had somebody yell at me after what feels like the longest day of my life. And she was, she was like, I think that you are right where you're supposed to be because you get to tell people about what we do. And she was like, whether you know it or not, you're a pretty good storyteller. I think maybe you just need to like get a cup of coffee, 
like take a break. It's been a long day yeah. and come back at it tomorrow. And it kind of, it stuck with me because um, I, right at that moment, I was ready to just kind of <laughs> dust my hands of yeah. it and just be done. Throw in the towel. <laughs> right. um, but that was, you know, that was four years ago and I'm still here um, trying to tell stories about, you know, people like my parents and my husband and I and people like you and <clears throat> and like Ron. Yeah. Because I think it's important, it's really important to explain to people who don't know or don't understand that people like us um, touch their food with our hands mm. and we care about it yeah. in, a, in a very visceral way. Um, you know, I have a, a friend of mine who is a livestock grower and um, when I was working as a journalist, he had a couple of calves freeze one night and he was heartbroken. Um, and I, and I'm, I can't explain how devastated this lifelong rancher was to lose these, these two calves. Um, mm. so much so that he couldn't even talk about it. He was choked up about these two calves that he'd picked up that morning. Um, uh, and I was working as a print journalist at the time and he said, please don't write about it. And I said, I would never, ever do that. Um, this, that's not what this story is about. And he said, good. Cause I just can't answer any questions about it. Mm. And, um, that level of heartbreak and that level of investment, I think is what I see more often than not. And then for people who don't know what it's like at all for people like that yeah, from a distance, mm -hmm. don't really know anything about all of this, but maybe you've read some things on the internet to go and then accuse that person of not caring yeah. or just be in it for a buck yeah. or all these awful things that end up getting said, you know, in the comment threads of the world. Yep. I think it's, you know, it's hard to read those sorts of comments because I think it's people who, who don't understand um, the real investment in everything um, that goes into a farm or a ranch or, you know, whatever your connection to agriculture is because it is something that takes over your life and you either love it or you don't. Yep. Um, you know, we have, we have two children and I would say that they both to varying degrees, love it, um, but in very different ways. Yeah. And, I, and you, can, you can see that. Um, and I think the people who are good at farming and ranching are people who feel it in their bones. It's, it's not something you do because you're going to make a lot of money because <laughs> you're not. Yeah. It's something you do because you genuinely feel called to do it. Um, you get up every single day thinking to yourself, I can't see myself doing anything else. Mm. And I think that's, um, that's something that I think is really important that I try to translate for a consumer is this notion that, no, there's not a lot of money and the hours are long and we work um, most times of year. But the, the gift of that is that we get to do something that we feel compelled to do every day. And that's, um, that's something that most people will never get to experience. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Growing food for people and animals. Mm -hmm. I guess you guys do. Yes. 
your corn is people corn or cow corn? <laughs> it's cow corn, um, which is a distinction that a lot of people don't understand. But yeah. um, there's an in cows law- like different kind of corn they than do, people. I, I mean, they'll they eat, they'll eat sweet corn. They're not picky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but people are picky. Yeah. Interestingly, though, you can as a people you can eat cow corn yeah. when it's little, um, and my daughter does. She'll when we're changing water, she'll go out and just uh, shuck an ear of corn. When it's just little guy, and she'll just munch on it. That's her snack while we're out changing water. It's really starchy. Uh, you know, it's not terrible when it's a little baby, but once it yeah. gets, you know, to sort of regular cob size, it's um, it's not great. <laughs> I had a friend who grew up as a missionary in Africa, mm-hmm. and just to show like our North American palate for sweet, we just want everything sweet. There, their corn wasn't sweet. They, that wasn't what they were interested in. It tasted much more like cow corn. So one time, and he hadn't been around farming here, but he came out to my place and where we were living at that time. It was next to a field of field corn, cow corn. And we told him about this. And he's like, I'm going to go try it. So he tried it. And he's like, I love this. This is like the corn that I had when I was a kid in Africa. Interesting. Yeah. He didn't want that sweet. So we take some of that stuff for granted, you know? Well, and I think it's, it is, I think, a palate thing. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's interesting here is that um, some of the corn that you drive past is neither of those popcorn, mm. which is uh, also different. And it, I would not recommend eating it because <laughs> yeah. it's not great. Um, but it's, it is sort of what your, your experience will allow um, and I, I lived abroad for a while in undergrad, and so um, I'm probably the most adventurous eater in my household. Um, and so uh, we we sort of regularly introduce things that are, I would say, probably somewhat unusual um, to Eastern Washington's palate. Yep. Uh, yep. In our in our food, like one of my you know one of my favorite things is an Irish dish called uh, Dublin Coddle. Mm. which is basically a potato stew, mm-hmm. but it's not thickened with any cream. Mm. It's You use potatoes that are diced up really fine so that when they stew, they become the thickener mm-hmm. for the soup. Um, if you've never had it, it's for sure an acquired taste mm. um, because it doesn't, it doesn't taste like potato soup mm. the way we think of. Right. You know, it's right. Not, it doesn't have all the cream and... Right. All the other things. Um, but in our household, it's something that we eat uh, because I've made it long enough that it's sort of an expectation <laughs> that that's how it will be. Um, also, we have some lactose intolerant people in my household, so it's a, uh, it's a nice helps. substitute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, perfect. That said, I you know, I would bathe in cheese if I could. So <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a balance to be had. I love cheese almost to that degree as well. Yeah. Um, to step back now that you've been a policy analyst, I mean, you talk about telling stories, mm-hmm. but, and you do a lot of that, but also you have to read yes. what lawmakers are working on, what agent state agencies are doing, mm-hmm. and then try to put together information that helps inform the direction that they're going. Right. That's. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the best description of my job, and it sounds super boring is that I read legislation and then argue about why it's good or bad for ag. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the time, um, at least 
right now. I hope it will change someday. A lot of the time I'm arguing about why it's not good. Mm. Um, whether it's um, site-specific tree height uh, for buffer bills mm. or... Um, Sounds complicated. Uh, kind of. I mean, it's not super complicated. It's it's sort of semi sciencey, um, or things like uh, you know the revision to increase the fee for H two A on a state level. Um, it's those are things that have real world consequences for people. So in the case of site specific tree height, if you have trees that are to a maximum height, then you have to go out a certain distance. Um, from the body of water where the trees reside and that becomes uh, anything that's in that distance is your buffer zone Um, in places like western Washington that's particularly problematic in ag land um, because it's all of it (laughs) if you're in eastern Washington we have slightly less trees um, so it becomes less of a problem uh, and less waterways for that matter Um, but it is still problematic uh, to some extent. Yeah. So um, it's taking things that are fairly complicated um, in terms of what they mean and trying to distill it down to something that's easy to consume. So from having spent these recent years doing that, what's your perspective on what's going on in Olympia? You know, here in Washington State, I think a lot of people tend to agree We want local food. We want family farms to grow food here in this state. From the things that you see, is Olympia doing what it needs to do to help that happen? No. And I think a lot of the reason that that Olympia is not doing that has a lot to do with a misunderstanding of agriculture and um, a general disconnect from agriculture. And I think a lot of fear around agriculture. Um, Like fear of what? Well, you know, if you think about things like people say all the time that organic is better for you, and I think it's a great example. And this is not a knock to organic farmers because I think there's room for all walks of farming um, in this state and everywhere. But organic produce, the end result of organic produce, farming is not inherently better or worse for you than conventionally grown produce by the science by the science um there is a really great study out of stanford that broke down um in fact the dirty dozen and tested or uh both organic grown versions and conventional grown versions of of things that are knocked often so strawberries Peaches. The dirty dozen being what? The dirty dozen Isn't is. Isn't there a group that named that and said those are yes. the fruits? Is it fruit? Oh, all fruits and it's veggies? Fruits and vegetables. That you're supposed to avoid because they're, they're just, dirty. Right, because they're dirty and they're chock full of pesticides. Um, and so you should only eat the organic versions. Um, My understanding is that's basically been debunked. Right. By, by a lot of people. And so when that first started to come out and come about and be very popular, Stanford did a study comparing the two, both conventional and organic, and found that there was no nutritional difference. There was nothing that made one or the other better. Mm. And I think um, that's a great example of trying to level the playing field in agriculture. And I think yeah. the, you know, there's other things that we've, we have done culturally that have 
um, sort of permeated uh, how lawmakers talk about ag. And I think the notion of clean eating versus not, mm. if there's clean eating, that implies that there's also dirty eating, right? right? So what does, you know, what does that look like? What does clean eating look like? You know, if you have food allergies or you have food sensitivities that mean you can't eat things that are considered clean foods, does that mean that you're eating dirty food? You know, good point. Yeah. Um, I think also there's, there's a lot that needs to be talked about in terms of how we talk about food equity mm. as well, because we have such an emphasis always on either eating fresh produce or none. Well, if you are a middle to low income household, yeah, it gets tough. Fresh produce just may not be in your ballpark. It may not be in your budget, especially right now. You know, inflation is what nine percent. So, um, you know, Bloomberg put out a, a piece in June talking about how, for the first six months of the year, the average American household, all households, were paying four hundred dollars more a month for groceries. Wow. That is an astronomical amount, particularly if you are a low or middle income household. Yeah. So the first thing to go often in those instances are things like fresh produce because they're considered a luxury. So now we're shaming families who can't afford those things. And instead of saying, buy what you can afford, frozen produce is not worse. Canned produce is not worse. It's just packaged differently. And I think a lot of our lawmakers characterize it as it's fresh or nothing. Mm. But there's plenty of other ways for families to get nutritious food. And I think even when you're looking at a local market, and Washington's a great example, we grow 300 food items in this state. It's remarkable what we are able to produce here. Looking at what people are growing just down the road from you. Get a hold of a CSA box for $20 a week yeah. if you can. Yeah. If you can't, check a local listing and see where a farmer's market is. Likely there's one close. Yeah. Check with your neighbor. They may have chickens and be trying to get rid of eggs uh, yeah. like we are. <laughs> uh, if anybody needs eggs, call me. I've got, uh, right now I have like five dozen in my refrigerator. Um, so there's those sorts of things where I think – lawmakers not understanding that those create food barriers when I think they're well-intentioned. I do. I think, yeah. you know, I don't think it's intentional that they're trying to create these barriers, but they do by making food more expensive because they're making food production more expensive mm. and they're making it harder for people to be farmers. And if you continue to make food production harder and more expensive, what ends up happening is you drive out food producers. They go somewhere else. And you hurt those low-income consumers. Right. And those low-income consumers are the first people who are punished by that. Not, you know, not people who live in downtown Seattle because they're right. still going to go to Whole Foods. Yeah. You're, I'm talking about the people who live in the suburbs of Tacoma. Yeah. Or the suburbs of Spokane, yeah. for that matter. Just trying to make ends meet. Right. Trying to work a job, trying to somehow keep food on the table mm -hmm. in this economy where that's not easy to do. Yeah. And I think um, this next legislative session will be interesting because we are going to have to start talking about some of those buzzy words that our lawmakers like to use, like equity. Yeah. Um, and what equity means 
in a food environment where things are hard to get and there are plenty of local producers, but there won't be if we keep going down this path that's really hyper-focused on things like banning gas-powered cars and um, taking out hydropower and uh, telling farmers that they have to somehow source an electric tractor. Um, Those are things that are unrealistic. You've got to see the forest for the trees. Right. And I think um, that is something that no amount of messaging can change if... The listener isn't listening. Yeah, true. Thank you for having me here to the farm. Well, I know you. we could go on and coming. on because, I mean, all the policy stuff that you know, you know, I just know kind of the surface level of that. And I could quiz you about specifics ad nauseum, I'm sure. Um, but I, and most people probably don't want to hear us go banter back and forth about all the Olympia nitty gritty and this and that. But it is important, this high level, these high-level issues that you're talking about. What is the future of our food system here in Washington State? That's what it's all about. It really is. And I, I hope that what people will see ultimately is that there are ways to reach out. And there are ways to bridge that gap. There are ways to have win-wins. Yes. And, there, yeah. and I think if we can figure out how to compromise... Um, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think uh, if you ask any farmer, they'll tell you that land stewardship, water stewardship, air quality, those are things that are equally important yeah. uh, to a farmer as they are to um, you know, someone in an urban environment. Uh, and I would argue probably more so because they, they need those things to be successful on farm. Uh, it's, it's a matter of figuring out how to, how to make those things knit in with good food policy. Yeah. Make it all work. Right. And, and be better. Yep. Well, thank you for doing what you do, growing food and then working at that high level of trying to to keep our food system intact and moving in a positive, healthy, you know, sustainable direction uh, versus some of the other kind of pie in the sky, can't see the forest for the trees, things that, that do often go on. So I appreciate what you do. Well, uh, Despite some appearances, depending on the season, it is my pleasure to do it. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. 